The Tom Woods Show, episode 1616. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, all your friends think they know what went wrong in 2008, why there was deregulation, and we need more skulls cracked by the state to prevent that kind of crisis from ever happening again. Well, this is entirely false, and you can build up your ammunition against it by reading my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman, over at regulationmyths.com. Everybody, Tom Woods here. I am sharing today something from a long time ago. Let's get our minds off the terrible thing we're enduring right now and cast our minds back maybe, well, maybe 13 years ago, actually, or maybe even 14 years ago. I didn't look at the exact date, but I do know when the book being discussed came out. That's my book with the horrible title, 33 Questions About American History You're Not Supposed to Ask. I think it's one of the best things I've ever done, actually. We talked about that. It was an interview I did at the Mises Institute about that book, and I think the ensuing conversation is fairly engaging, and I've never shared it before, and it gets our mind off this blankety-blank virus for a little while. And as I said, next week, we're going to get Jack Spierko on to talk about prepping, to talk about uh, being prepared in situations like this, what that entails and how you do it and what's too much and what's too little. I think he is definitely the guy to talk to. Have not talked to him since episode 31 of the Tom Wood Show. So we'll do that. And I'm going to see what else I can do on this topic. I don't want to have competing scientific theories about what's going on because I'm, you know, well, this guy's a doctor. Yeah, I know. I know he is. I'm sure the guy's a doctor, but I don't know if he's full of it. You know, how am I supposed to know? It's just because he's a doctor who says what you want to be said does not mean he's correct. And I, I just, I can't adjudicate these things. Anyway, here we go. Hope you enjoy this. My name is Jeffrey Tucker, and I'm the editor of Mises.org, and it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, with us today Thomas Woods. Professor Thomas Woods, the author of this, well, this whole library you see in front of you here, but also, and many other books. But in particular today, we're going to talk about his new book, 33 Questions About American History. And my first question is, why 33? Yeah, I get that all the time, Jeff. Why 33? I've got numerologists trying to come up with some reason. I've had many people say, well, is it because Christ lived to be 33 years old or something? But honestly, it was just that the publisher thought 33. Because when I actually came, came up with it, the idea of a question and answer thing, I had about 27 questions. And they came back at me and said, how about 33? Okay. You're, you're the marketers. You know what works. 27 does sound pretty stupid, come to think of it, for some reason. Yeah. So, so they did extensive marketing research. On yeah, and they said the, the number that will work, not one, not one more or one less, is 33. So Was the book inspired by your politically incorrect guide? Uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, in that I, I realize that people are interested in American history from kind of a libertarian perspective. But no, in that it's not the same stuff just packaged into a question and answer format. It's got all different things that I either didn't get to or didn't think of at the time I wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide. I mean, things like, you know, the Founding Fathers favored jury nullification. Did anybody know that? I mean, things like that. Right. Just stuff that is just off the table I want to bring on to the table. And after your extensive classroom experience, you have a, probably a pretty good idea of what students uh, know and what they don't know. Well, that's true, and uh, it's pretty depressing, frankly. But on the other hand, you know, it means that you can start with a blank slate with a lot of them. Um, you know, Jefferson once said that 
it would be better for Americans to read no newspapers at all than to read the newspapers of his day. And so likewise, it's better for them to know no American history at all. Why did he have such a faith in education then? What was the deal? Yeah, with I don't know, that's a good good point. But at least he wanted to keep things on the local level. But yeah, but yeah, but but no, it's true. They come in not not knowing a whole heck of a lot. But when you sort of indicate to them that, hey, I'm gonna let you in on stuff that you won't hear anywhere else, or it's being suppressed. Well, that sort of piques their interest. Well, what is this? You, you appeal to their sort of teenage rebellion instinct. Like, why is authority keeping this information from me? And then you got them right eating out of the palm of your hand. <laughs> uh, so what was your method of selecting the questions? Well, I thought of, first of all, things that interest me. Yeah. And then I thought of areas where I felt like I've been sometimes criticized in the past. And I wanted to have a chance to revisit these things and show that, no, 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 I have a good reason for believing X, Y, or Z. So there is a little bit of that. But, but really, I, you know, I, I happen to be kind of interested in the Austrian school of economics. And uh, yeah, that's sort of a well-kept <laughs> secret. But, you know, here we are revealing all. But I wanted to apply some of that to the study of American history. So, for instance, my chapter on the Great Depression is much different from my politically incorrect chapter because there I had intended to talk about the Austrian theory of the business cycle and explain to people why we have these downturns and there was just no room for it and I was devastated and all I could do in there was plead with people, look, please read Murray Rothbard's book, America's Great Depression. But now finally with this thing, I can take, you know, six pages and just give a step-by-step regular guy overview of what caused the Great Depression from the Austrian point of view. And then I apply that type of Austrian analysis to the presidencies of Hoover and Roosevelt, again using new information from what's in the other book, and then even to things like what Robert Higgs has been doing in terms of the real state of the economy during World War II and showing that these national income accounting statistics that suggest that we had fantastic prosperity are simply not believable for various reasons that I give. So there's really, I think, useful revisionist history in here in the best sense of the word revisionist. Um, but I, I do want to give an example of what I mean by something that is kind of a defense of myself, and that is the area of states' rights is sometimes an unappreciated aspect of classical liberalism because yeah. people sort of feel like, you know, well, states have no rights. And so, well, of course, I agree with that. I mean, we're not, it's just a shorthand phrase. Nobody's arguing a state has a right. Yeah. The point is simply that there's an apportioning of, of powers under yeah. the Constitution, that's all, and that it's generally best to keep power limited and local. And, you know, Ralph Rako has argued at great length that this is how liberty came to European, Europe in European history because you had a great number of small principalities and people could just leave if they felt like they were being oppressed. But specifically what I want to show is that the idea of states' rights in American history needs to be detoxified because we all know it has been used for bad purposes, obviously, for, for to oppress people. We all recognize that. Fair enough. But almost any good thing has been perverted uh, by people. But the question is, in the broad span of American history, how have states' rights been used? And what I'm showing is that Actually, they have been used on behalf of obviously just causes uh, against war, against uh, economic devastation caused by um, Jefferson's embargo. Even when it was being proposed during the War of 1812 that we should have military conscription, Daniel Webster gave this famous speech in the House of Representatives urging that we should not do this. This is not compatible with the principles of a free society. But specifically, he said, you know, what should happen? What should we do if through some madness, the Congress should go ahead and approve this and the president signs and we have conscription. How should we deal with that? And he said, 
the states should resist. The states should interpose, stand between the federal government and their people and resist. And likewise, I also point out that, that uh, states' rights arguments were used against fugitive slave laws that re require northern states to return slaves, runaway slaves to the south. And, and there, now, the problem, of course, is that the Constitution does have a fugitive slave clause in it, say, you know, sort of obligating the north to return the slaves. But that doesn't mean that the federal government could do absolutely anything it wanted to in order to get the slaves returned. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 had some very obnoxious and I think clearly unconstitutional provisions um, in it. Among other things, it appointed fugitive, federal fugitive slave commissioners whose job it was to evaluate these cases and say, is this person the runaway slave described here in the complaint? Well, if the fugitive slave commissioner returns the slave to his master, he gets $10. But if he sets him free, he gets only $5. So the slave commissioners had a financial stake in the outcome of the case, which obviously is a, an outrage. And so there were other reasons also that people uh, thought this was unconstitutional. So there were states that just made it very difficult for the federal government to carry this out. And then when the Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a statement on this to explain why Wisconsin was being so lackluster in its enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act, they quoted Thomas Jefferson from over 60 years earlier. This is 1859, Wisconsin Supreme Court. They quote the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, where Jefferson says that the states are not bound you know, to, to obey laws that are unconstitutional. That tradition was alive and well, and it was being used on behalf of human freedom. And there's a general principle at work here, too. In the whole classical liberal tradition in favor of decentralized power or decentralized government authority, not just in the U.S., and cer but certainly in the U.S., Gary Garrett, you know, I mean, oh, sure, uh, the yeah, whole yeah, old yeah, right yeah. Frank Shotteroff, yeah. Murray Rothbard, this is, not some, right, this is not some crazy theory Tom Woods came up yeah. with. This is part of the tradition. World and Lord Acton, too. Yeah, At, for that matter, Hayek. You know, yeah, and Hayek, Hayek. said that, uh, that liberty is in the future most likely to be preserved in small states. Yeah. Well, after, he actually advocated the breakup of Germany back into its little tiny states after oh, World War II. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know. Well, so, I mean, there's this general faith. What happened? Well, what happened, um, I suppose, back, what, in the 1960s or 70s, to American libertarian thought that uh, this aspect of things just sort of dropped out? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, some of it is the same type of opportunism that we are inclined to accuse liberals or conservatives of. You know, when, the, when they've got their guy in power, then suddenly they want to abandon all their principles and force their views on the country. Well, I think likewise, there are some libertarians who say, well, I like a federalization of uh, whatever, this or that policy, because right now the federal government is doing what I would like it to do. So therefore, I favor keeping Roe versus Wade or whatever, all those things. But I think the, in the long term, you know, this type of centralized approach yeah, to liberty, works, yeah, not only does it not work, it relies on the idea that you're always going to have uh, some type of liberty regime in power in, in Washington, D.C. And I, I, that strikes me as being a little naive, yeah. uh, you know, given our current situation. Yeah, I think about the, 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 the current regime rather than the long term. And it's interesting that even the political left is starting to see the merits, I think, of local government and states' rights and, the, and so on and so forth. Because, for instance, you know, the, the medical marijuana cases that we've seen, and particularly out in California, where there are people who have horrific, uh, uh, you know, health problems, and and I'm not here to debate whether the the marijuana can make them better, but it can it can help them cope with it better. Uh, Angel Rach has this uh, disorder. Well, she's got 
all kinds of inoperable problems and tumors, and she's got uh, a mysterious wasting syndrome that causes her to lose at least a pound a day, if, and she'll basically die in the absence of using medical marijuana. And they've tried all other treatments, and either they don't work or they give her intolerable side effects. So she has friends who grow the, the marijuana for her medical use, and they give it to her, and there are other people who grow it themselves. But we've seen that the Drug Enforcement Administration has actually gone around, uh, our agency has gone around and actually uh, had uh, launched raids on these people's homes where they, they've gone in and confiscated this stuff and tried to throw them in jail. Even though the states, at least a dozen states, have now said, we want to make this an option for people. And th there is a, a sense, I think, among people on the left that this is an outrage, you know, like why in the world and how can you justify that? And the argument that, that uh, the federal uh, government uses is that the Interstate Commerce Clause justifies them yeah. in confiscating marijuana. And, and her argument, Angel Rage's argument is, well, let's see, the marijuana was grown in this state just down the street from me and it's consumed completely by me and I'm not, I'm not going over state line. How could this possibly be interstate commerce? So it's, but it's interesting that when their, their case got to the Supreme Court, the so-called liberals on the court, like Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, did they support her right to do this? No, because for the establishment liberal, federal supremacy always comes first, always trumps human concerns. Interestingly, it was Clarence Thomas who actually al practically alone said, well, wait a minute, this does seem a little odd that you would call interstate commerce the growing of a local crop for use by one person three inches away. And, and it's interesting that at the time, counterpunch.org had an article saying, well, gee, you know, um, Clarence Thomas's dissent was really eloquent here. And I, Clarence Thomas has his problems and everything, but on this he was really very good. But, you know, I think they're starting to see that there is merit in the idea that, okay, maybe some states aren't going to like this or that lifestyle choice, to, to use an unfortunate uh, phrase. But you know what? That's sort of what a free society is about. If you don't like what that neighborhood is doing, you don't live in that neighborhood. You know, there's a simple common sense aspect to this that is very appealing to people. So you try to resurrect this idea of states' rights in here. Do you address the interstate commerce clause within that uh, question, or do you... I, I do that as one of the separate questions. A separate like question, a, Three yeah. of the 33 questions are dealing with the constitutional clauses that people have driven trucks through, the loopholes yeah, of. Yeah. Um, Interstate commerce, general welfare, and necessary and proper. And it's, by the way, it's not to say that... You just summarized the whole Constitution. Yeah, there it is. Right? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not to say, by the way, that the Constitution is, is, is a perfect document or we wouldn't be better off with something else. But it is, it, the reason I bring these up is to show that how it is that documents that at least some people who ratified them thought their purpose was to limit government, how it is that governments are able to turn those things around and, and sometimes take documents that were intended to limit them and turn them into mandates for their own growth. That's an interesting phenomenon to observe, so I'm trying to cover that uh, too. Yeah, what else do you cover in here? The first, I remember when I first picked up the, uh, the book, you told me about it uh, while you were writing it. Of course, I paid absolutely no attention to anything you said. So, uh, so when I first uh, opened the book, I, my, my eye fell on chapter 32. Who was SB? Oh Fuller, yeah, I want which to talk is about not SB a burning. Fuller. It's not a no. burning question. Yeah, right. I, I love the, yeah, right. The book is called Thirty Three Questions About American History You're Not Supposed to Ask. One of them is, 
who was SB Fuller? Know, As if people are, are, are crawling yeah, around sort of secretly. secretly yeah, right. I'd love to find out who he is, but I don't dare. <laughs> Politicians don't want you to know. Well, uh, do you want to Well, first of all, let's note that uh, this segment of the program is brought to you by Vitamin Water, which is a new invention I learned about from Jeff Tucker. And you can expect to see an article on this on, on, the, on the web soon about Vitamin Water. Uh, vitamin Water is not a hoax. It's the real thing. Yeah, vitamins plus water, all you need. And so we, we, we combine that with adjusting your thermostat and getting an electric fan and baking your own bread. You are yeah. all set. All right, anyway. And knowing about Fuller. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and S.B. Fuller is a fascinating guy because he's a guy who, he is your classic self-made man. Because in the middle of the Great Depression, he's a black guy. In the middle of the Great Depression, he took $25 and he turned it into one of the most successful cosmetic companies in the, in the country and made himself into reportedly the wealthiest African-American man in the United States. And he's got one of these fascinating stories when you read, there's a biography of him that's been written and totally ignored, but he's got a fascinating story. He talks about growing up and having the, the welfare people come to his home. And he said, we were absolutely mortified by this because we didn't, not only did we refuse any, uh, any government assistance, he said, but we didn't even want our neighbors to think that we couldn't make it on our own. So we learned that you make it on your own. And so we did that. So he's this, again, he's this fantastic entrepreneur. He employs thousands of, of people, and not just blacks, but, but a lot of blacks. But his argument was, okay, uh, in a lot of parts of the country, we are living in very hostile circumstances where people don't want to interact with us, or whatever. They, they have um, stereotypes about us. He said, now, those are things that we want, to, we want to repair, but in the meantime, there are still things we can do for ourselves. He said, for one thing, there are a lot of my fellow blacks living here in the U.S., and they can be my customers, that we can at least cater to ourselves. We can produce products for our community, that even if we can't crack into the white community, there are a lot of blacks who can buy cosmetics and shoes and hats and whatever. Why don't we do that? So that was basically what he did, and if you, re if you look at his biography, I love the way they've got uh, they've got photos from from uh, his conventions, and you see thousands of people at his conventions, and they're all you know they're all thrilled to be part of this great thing. And uh, every year he gave a Cadillac to his top seller, and you know and you can see this you know this young guy just beaming, saying, "I can't believe I'm getting a Cadillac for selling these products." But the thing is, though, you've never heard of S.B. Fuller, partly because he now even though he was briefly an, an NAACP chapter head. He placed much more emphasis on, on, on the economic angle rather than on politics as the method for advancement. Now, not that he was against using political means, but his view was that for the average black person, practically speaking, right now in the 50s, what can we do? It's entrepreneurship. And, and at one point, he really kind of got impatient. He said, I'm upset that more blacks aren't following my lead. They're not starting businesses in their communities. We need to do that. And when he would, he would go off on tangents like this, people, uh, sometimes the civil rights establishment got upset with him. You know, what are you, blaming the victim or whatever? So he's not the, he wasn't the most popular person in his day. But when you look at major people in the civil rights movement and afterward, they look back on him and said, look, the fact is he opened a lot of doors for us. He did a lot of important work. And at his 70th birthday party, who is sitting at his table at this big, big celebration? Jesse Jackson which goes to show that ultimately, at some level, you have to sort of admit that, you know, hey, success has to be acknowledged. You know, the guy, I don't agree with his philosophy. I don't think he placed enough emphasis on politics, but 
look, it worked. What he did worked. He, he, he turned thousands of people's lives around, and that should count for You know, it's not just the history of, of black entrepreneurship in America that's, that's unknown. It seems like um, the whole history of enterprise in general is just not something that people pursue anymore. Uh, you know, our library is filled with, with books that, that came out um, in the 1930s and 1940s on the history of, of American entrepreneurs yeah, and yeah. how they r brought us, you know, all the things we love, like air conditioning, vitamin water. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, yeah, are yeah. Are you yes, interested in forgotten. this topic? I am. I mean, I, because it, it, usually the stories of American entrepreneurs or inventors or whatever are much more interesting than reading histories of politicians. So you, you know, he grew up in a yeah. log cabin, whatever. He had this or that. I, I mean, I'm much more interested in this guy who, you know, he failed and failed and failed, then he succeeded, and and uh, you know, people who just devote themselves to improving the lives of their fellow men and, of course, enriching themselves in the process. I mean, it's fascinating. And there have been good books on this. Yeah, there was that book a couple of years ago called They Made America about yeah. all these forgotten oh, that, stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there need to be so many yeah, more of these. I, know. I think there used to be more. It used to be something that people really studied. Yeah, whereas now, of, yeah. I mean, there's this, there's this prejudice that you know, public service is yeah. the highest oh, end. And so, therefore, it crowds out all we the study of the privates. That's, I guess, um, uh, relates to a general question about this book and the subtitle is you're not supposed to ask. Uh, I guess you could say, you know, not supposed to ask of whom uh, and why, but it always seems to come down to the fact that the state has crowded out alternative um, explanations of of uh, social economic phenomena. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I remember when I was in school, from eighth grade onward, I remember that, I mean, if it hadn't been for the Mises Institute and, and, and having been directed to some good sound reading, I would have accepted pretty much what I was fed, which was that, you know, if it hadn't been for government, we'd all be, everybody would still be working 120 hours a week in a mine somewhere for three cents an hour. I mean, there's, and, and incidentally, at the very end of the 33 questions, I point out that isn't it interesting that Look at the very institution where kids are taught this stuff, that, oh, my goodness, the, the sky would fall if it weren't for the state to do all these things. We'd all be exploited by the wicked businessmen and this and that. Well, what institution teaches them that? The government school. The government school, government-funded and operated school, just so happens that it's teaching about all the great works of government and w without which we'd all be suffering. I mean, nobody seems to notice the conflict of interest there. But it totally warps the history of America such that even I think deep down some libertarians might secretly wonder, well, I wonder if maybe if it really isn't in fact true that, you know, maybe we did need some government for this or that, or maybe, uh, and so you get this narrative that you just cannot get out of people's minds. I mean, even, even still the idea of the Industrial Revolution, I mean, literally 99% of the population believes the Industrial Revolution was a disaster. Yeah, yeah, no, now, it's it, true. There has been an avalanche of scholarship refuting that. But yet, it just cannot penetrate the popular consciousness because this narrative of government as savior is so difficult to overturn that it's almost like no matter what you do, you just can't break through. And it really comes down to ideology, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that we all carry around with us some strange faith in the possibilities of power to do wonderful things for us. Right. I mean, after all, if Walmart were running our schools and the main textbooks all just heralded the glories of Walmart, which you might expect them to do, but at least we would sort of have an understanding of that, you know, if, you know have a little filter there. Yeah, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, that may be. This isn't necessarily the only way of thinking about how American history yeah, has gone. But with the state, we figured it's all objective. Now, uh, so part of the agenda of this book, then, is to bring some of the scholarship, then, to the popular mind. Right? Exactly right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's to take stuff that otherwise might be read only by other professors or just languishing on the shelves 
and make it vibrant and make it part of the telling of American history to the extent that I can. Yeah, what's another question? Oh, let's see. Um, I'm very interested in the subject of jury nullification, but no, but, yeah, right. yeah. but but uh, but I, I mean I do have in there, for instance, um, something that I think some libertarians already know about on the, the Wild West question. Oh, but yeah. but it's worth at least a few sentences because there has been a lot of work on this since the Anderson and Hill article from the Journal of Libertarian Studies on the not so wild Wild West, because they've actually written a book published by Stanford several years ago, and I, and I actually think it's called the Not So Wild West: uh, Property Rights on the Frontier, and it's a great book. But but even even beyond that, there are other people, um, Andy Morris at Case Western and others, who have written more recent, done more recent work and shown that in fact the understanding of the of the so-called Wild West that we have has been colored overwhelmingly by Hollywood renditions of these events Always and charming. by dime Always novels. Charming. Right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but you know, but you know that when you actually find out that you know, some of these people who write in their dime novels that I've been shot at 160 times. Turns out they've only been shot at one time, yeah. but you know, they admit that. That, but you know, nobody wants to read a book about me being shot at once. You know, so. It, but it turns out that actually the crime rates were very low. Uh, you know, bank robberies are pretty much non-existent. I mean, it's almost the opposite of what we've been told. But what's really interesting is that at the time of the gold rush, this is a time when you would think this is going to be a disaster because you've got people going out to the West Coast from all over the U.S. They're all different types of people from all different walks of life. You have people coming from Europe, even from China, to go make their fortune at a time when there isn't even a territorial government set up out in California. So you'd think, well, they're all just going to show up and kill each other because they're all going after the same thing, and they don't know each other. They're racially distinct. They, because as I say, there are people even coming from China. Uh, they have uh, no pre-existing community camaraderie to build on. They don't even—they're complete strangers, and they're not even planning on setting down roots and establishing a community and, and living there. They're planning to make their fortune and go home. So there are none of the conditions existing that you would think would be necessary for private individuals somehow to be able to work out their differences. And yet, private individuals worked out their differences by and large. It is ex extraordinary how private institutions were able to adjudicate disputes and establish property rights and so on under the worst possible conditions you could imagine. Where you know they had it had nothing going for it out in the, out in the West, and yet somehow it worked. It's a fascinating story, an interesting story, particularly for libertarians. So. It, that's got to be told, but uh, up, up to now, again, the research on that has been done by other people. I haven't. I mean, I've, I've read some of the primary sources, but mostly the research has been done by others. But we don't want this stuff languishing in in a couple of books here and there or articles from 30 years ago. We want people to remember this stuff and, and engage with it. So when I write, you know, the occasional popular book for the popular audience, that's what I'm trying to do. Is now that I have your attention, here's some stuff that that not only is not talked about, but it's not talked about by the typical right-wing sort of book. I mean, like, there's no, none of these t radio talk show hosts or anything are going to talk about this or know anything about the Austrian theory of the business cycle, but my goal is to sort of reach the kind of people who listen to those shows because they need to know about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Ha um, have you uh, uh, had interviews on, on radio and television about this book? Uh, on this book, I had a very brief... Um, appearance on Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel, but it was a week before the book came out, so it wasn't ideal. But that was okay. We talked about foreign aid, and, and I, I said on the air that I would support foreign aid only if I hated the human race, because it has had nothing but bad consequences. And I talked about Peter Bauer and his contributions. But yeah, I've done a, a fair amount of radio, but I mean, the biggest show I've done was, I, I was actually on the Michael Medved show a couple of times. Oh, yeah. and it's, what, is he sympathetic, or he's just well, I mean, wants you know, a good show? Yeah, I mean, well, he and I don't see eye to eye on yeah, certain important yeah, questions, yeah. but... 
what I respect about him, even in spite of my disagreements with him, is that he knew that before he had me on. Like he knew that you know I come from a different sort of tradition of thought and that I'm anti-war and everything. And he told me that off the air, but that he he likes history and he likes a lot of the stuff in my book. And I'm sure he doesn't. I, I know for a fact he doesn't agree with everything in it. But I think he felt like, on balance, it's a useful enough tweaking of the establishment that let's have this guy on and talk about it. And it was great. Yeah, it was great. So on on the war question, you'd address World War World War Two prosperity, the right? And then I do talk more about war here. So I don't think Medved would have me on to talk about current events. Yeah, history is one thing. Current <laughs> events is another. But, but yeah, well, one of the questions I, I raised that. You know, Jeff, I think you and I think about this a lot. The, the phony left-right paradigm in, in American uh, yeah. politics is often obscures more than it reveals. And I think, I think in, with the, in the case of war, that's particularly true. Because the impression is given by the media that people on the left are against war, people on the right are in favor of war. Now, on balance, you know, maybe more people on the right do favor war than people on the left, but that is a dangerous oversimplification. And we see that on television talk shows where they'll have the anti-war guy will be on the left, the pro-war guy will be on the right, and the impression is that, well, look, if you're against leftism, then you've got to be pro-war and be like this guy. And I'm trying to suggest there's another way of thinking, there's another tradition out there. But specifically what I'm showing is actually that the left, and I'm talking about the mainstream left, not the sort of charming, consistent, hard left, like counterpunch, the like commies. those guys. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the commies are sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they seem to get, yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah this is, that, that, I, I, there's, there's the quote to take out of context right there. <laughs> the commies are sound, although they're not totally sound on, on foreign policy, of course. But, but no, no, the point that I'm making is that the establishment left like you know, when the Democratic Party is, has by and large been pro-war throughout American history, that, that with the Spanish-American War, they viewed that as a progressive war, you know, to, to, to get rid of the, the evil backward Spain. And uh, World War I, the, the mainstream left was overwhelmingly in favor of World War I, both because they thought it was a righteous cause and because they thought war would be a good pretext for getting control over the U.S. economy. So, of course, they loved it. They were all in favor of it. And what's the guy's name? Richard Gamble, who might be an adjunct scholar here, I don't remember, but he's at Hillsdale, wrote a useful book about four years ago called The War for Righteousness. Uh, it was based on his Ph.D. dissertation, in which he showed that the religious left, you might say, the social gospel ministers, overwhelmingly supported World War I. And in fact, they scolded Woodrow Wilson for occasionally trying to bring about peace, saying, look, yes, 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 we believe in the Prince of Peace, yes. But sometimes it's more important to fight the thing to the, to the end and, and establish righteousness in the world. So they were overwhelmingly in favor of unconditional surrender and all these rotten fruits of the 20th century. So you keep going down into the Cold War, well, Harry Truman gets into Korea, where, where meanwhile the budget-conscious Republicans in the late 1940s were concerned about the Truman Doctrine, NATO, the, uh, the fact that Truman didn't get congressional authorization for the Korean War. It was the Republicans. Uh, it was establishment liberals who went into Vietnam. And even in the 1990s, I mean, now, in, in 2004, you had Howard Dean, and he was anti-war and everything. But it turns out that in the 1990s, he was all for war. As long as Clinton was running sure. the war, and so the right was against, yeah, and, and some of the right was I mean, against how the war. So we forget. Yeah, so they're just, so they're just opportunists. There's no, there's no underlying philosophy here. So I'm trying to suggest that this is not true. That there is not uh, this consistent anti-war tradition. Yes, some people on the left turn against wars like Vietnam or Iraq, but overwhelmingly the mainstream the wars against the communists. That <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. But overwhelmingly the mainstream of them has has at least initially supported these things, and then it turns out that. 
that, uh, you know, how much influence they had is another question, but if you look at the three major architects of American conservatism, uh, in, George Nash has this book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America since 1945, and he says that if you look at the tradition, what the group he calls the traditionalists among the conservatives, he said there are three people who were the most influential, Russell Kirk, Richard Weaver, and Robert Nisbet. And I have differences of opinion with all of them, but, you know, they're, they're, they're decent intellects and important people. Well, it's interesting that all three of them were in one, to one degree or another, anti-militarist or suspicious of, of the use of military power. Weaver wrote a beautiful essay in his book, Visions of Order, about total war. And, uh, and so you, like, he would not be a right-wing radio talk show host these days. And Nisbet was, was Nisbet amazing. Was, yeah, I wrote a whole article on that. Yeah, Nisbet was extraordinary. I quote him in the 33 yeah. questions. And then Russell Kirk was... Was was I mean, anti uh, draft, and he was anti war in a number of cases. And then uh, after he left National Review, and toward the end of his life, he was totally against the first Persian Gulf War. Had choice words for uh, the first George Bush. So I'm just trying to say that it's you know we need to muddy the waters a little bit here. You know, because when I was a kid, when I was younger, you know, I'm I was intellectually lazy in some ways. I, I just sort of thought, well, look, I know I'm not a leftist. So I guess, therefore, by process of elimination, I must be one of these people. Right. We all go through that stage, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, that's, and it's uh, part of education. And, and, so, and, 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 gee, you're against what the U.S. military right. is doing? What are you, some kind of a commie? Right. And, and you don't even realize that, actually, people who were both libertarians and conservatives were humane enough in, in, in our his history to look back and say, well, I'm not sure that conservative or libertarian values are really being uh, strengthened by all these military adventures. Suddenly your eyes open. Yeah, and you're willing to depart from the, uh, from the mainstream of the yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you dig up these little morsels of, of history, which, which is, in a sense, what this book is all about. I mean, it's sort of resurrecting the forgotten truths. And a lot of what you discuss in here was known at the time. It just got sort of uh, washed away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, some of them are questions that are just never raised at all. Right. And others of them are questions where you get such a propagandistic answer that it's it's just almost laughable. Well, it's amazing if you think about something like the early 1930s after the after the stock market crash. There were lots of people out there who understood, knew, and understood that the crash came about as a result of credit expansion. Right. Eric like Garrett, as we talked about this the other day, right? Yeah, the right. bubble that broke. And the then world. and then what happened? You know, after FDR comes along with all of his policies, you know, ten years later, it's like nobody remembers this or right. something. Or twenty years, twenty years after that, it's just it's just gone. And, and it's funny that the same people who were claiming that capitalism was responsible for the depression are the same ones who are now inanely claiming that capitalism is responsible for all these mortgage companies going bust and all this uh, instability whereas in fact the same non-capitalist institution is at work in both of these cases the federal reserve system and you know there has been a confusion throughout american history from the beginning that Alexander Hamilton was the capitalist in american history because he favored a national bank yeah. and he favored well, wait a minute. It depends on how you define. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it, it depends Next on how you Stalin. define capitalism. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Stalin was a big capitalist uh, by that logic. No, I mean, uh, you know, these are not capital. These are not free market institutions. They're established by government. They're not free market institutions. And so, Tom DiLorenzo, in his book How Capitalism Saved America, starts right off the bat defining what capitalism is. It, it capitalism does not say first you establish some institutions, then you. No, it just it just says that people have private property and they can exchange it freely with other people and and as a result you get fantastic prosperity. I mean that's what capitalism's about. So yeah, so there's been this and then ever since then there's been this view that 
that American history's got these two wings. You've got the Hamiltonian conservative capitalists and the Jeffersonian radical agrarians. And it's just such an overwhelming misconception. I just wrote an article for Modern Age, which is the, because this year, this is 2007 we're talking here, uh, it's a 50-year anniversary of Modern Age, which was a conservative journal founded by Russell Kirk. And they're having this sort of retrospective and then, you know, looking to the future. They're always having retrospective. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Right. You know, it's the 47th year or whatever. Yeah. Let's, I, 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 I'm always happy to have a retrospective. Yeah, but yeah. The, the issue was, you know, like what, like my section of the issue is you know, about the old republic and where did it go and how to get it back. And um, so I actually revisited this. And, and it's coming out this year. And I said that uh, actually the correct tradition for us is Jefferson and that Hamilton needs to be rejected root and branch for a variety of reasons, his economics, his, his, his I think, frankly, dis, dishonesty regarding the Constitution and on down the line, uh, and, and his, I, I think sometimes um, his views about war and war powers, although he's not as bad as our modern people, he just needs to be rejected root and branch. And it's interesting to note that, uh, first of all, that the Jeffersonians, by and large, didn't favor government support for this and that. They, they, their view was that you have laissez-faire, nobody gets any special advantages, that's good enough. Yeah. That's all the common well, what man needs. What is the source of, That's of all confusion the over needs. Jefferson? Well, partly Arthur Schlesinger, when he wrote about the the, uh, the Jacksonian period, he wanted to, to identify a lineage for American leftism. And it's very hard in American history to find modern left liberalism in either Hamilton or in Jefferson. So he frankly had to invent one. So he basically came up with this bifurcation between Hamilton as the conservative, Jefferson as the radical liberal or something, and, you know, and he is a radical liberal in the classical liberal sense, but not in the modern left liberal sense. And ever since then, you've had this attempt to trace Je Jefferson, Jackson, populist, New Deal. Yeah. You know, Jefferson would be appalled at the New Deal. So ever since then, though, that has stuck. And the populists were all inflationists. Yeah, by and large, they, they, yeah, by and large, they were. So I'm, I'm trying to recall in, in my article, I'm trying to recall what Clyde Wilson said in the late 1960s in modern age, which was... He, called, he wrote an article called The Jeffersonian Conservative Tradition. He said, yeah. to heck with Hamilton. What's interesting is that even Russell Kirk, in one of his books in the 50s, said, you know, we make a mistake if we identify ourselves going back to Hamilton. He said, because Hamilton was a great innovator, trying to impose all these newfangled industrial sort of policies on this country that, by and large, didn't want them. So even, even uh, Kirk said, nah, to heck with Hamilton. Yeah. Who needs oh, and that reminds me of the imperial presidency question, which you also addressed oh, that's right. in, in the book. Mm. Uh, Schlesinger uh, also had complaints about the imperial presidency, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, <laughs> Schlesinger is just, oh, gosh, I mean, you just can't take him seriously. Because, of course, he has no problem with the imperial presidency yeah. if, if the president is one of his drinking buddies or whatever. You know, I mean, that's fine. But as, as long as it's Richard Nixon, then, then oh, we've got to be, yeah. Six for Tyrannus, yeah. And, and I mean, by the way, I mean, that's not to make any defense of Nixon, who, who famously said on matters of national security that, uh, you quote, well, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. I mean, that's so, so much for centuries of the liberal tradition trying to overturn the idea that the king is above the law. <laughs> that means it isn't illegal. Yeah, I'm talking about the... Now, in some ways, the, the term imperial presidency is a little dated. We don't maybe use that phrase as much anymore. But, but the concept is very much alive. I mean, everybody, look around. It's all over the place. People talking about what has happened to the presidency. And what I'm trying to argue is that it's not just that George Bush came into office and then the presidency just became this fantastic, huge institution unaccountable to anybody. I do think there is a serious difference between George W. Bush and some of his predecessors, but this didn't all just come out of his head. And that's, I think it's very dangerous to think otherwise. I was on a, a, a left-wing show, radio show, 
um, Leslie Marshall's show. Very, very, very nice woman, maybe a month or so ago. And she started off, she, I think she thought I was going to be some kind of GOP shill. So she was going to set me straight. She started off by telling me how bad the Republicans were. And I'm sitting on the other Why end. Why are you having me you know, on the show? Yeah, impatiently <laughs> nodding, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's saying the Republicans have done this, 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 and this. And so we need the Democrats and this and that. So then when I gave my reply, I said, well, I'm sorry, Leslie, I can't be as optimistic as you are. <laughs> I said that I actually think that, the, you know, the Democrats, whatever mild improvement they may be in some ways, uh, they are responsible for a bipartisan foreign policy that's 60 years old that's yeah. caused us all kinds of problems. But, but in terms of the presidency itself, what I'm showing is that the president I think we most need to blame for the presidency getting the way it is today is Teddy Roosevelt, who's a president who is loved by the mainstream, loved by the, by the left, loved by the right, who, both of which are looking around for, yeah, I wonder how the presidency got to be the way it is. Well, it's your hero. And the reason I identify him is not that there was no presidential activism before him. Right. And certainly under Lincoln, right. uh, there was. Anybody would admit that. But that was an, that was an unusual case because then there was a wartime situation. But in, in peacetime, the, the difference is that Teddy Roosevelt comes to the office with a full-fledged philosophy of how the presidency should work, and he's going to try to implement that. So he's got two basic ideas he wants to, to see implemented. One is the idea that I'm the president. And because I was elected by the whole country, and you senators were elected only by your states, therefore I have kind of the upper hand here. I'm the unique representative of the American people. So it's my job to see that the will of the people is put into effect, regardless of what that means. If that means I have to run roughshod over the Congress, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and he does that repeatedly. Uh, secondly, there's his idea that the president can do anything that's not expressly prohibited in the Constitution, which is kind of an in inverse you know, uh, I, uh, relation to what the original understanding was, that you could do only what's expressly authorized. His view is that if it's not prohibited, I can do it. So he's got this very expansive view, and he's very much a visible president. You know, if, if, he's, if he's going out, you know, if he's, if he's going bowling or something, everybody knows about it. It's like the current presidents. You know, if George Bush or Bill Clinton are out playing golf, we all know about it. We know what their handicap is, whatever. That would have horrified Jefferson, you know, that you care this much about some guy. You know, so, uh, and, and, and this guy has to run the country, a phrase I can't stand. So I'm showing that consistently in the way he carries out the office and the way he thinks about the office, he puts this imprint on it that all the so-called great presidents have followed ever since. Harry Truman very much followed in Teddy Roosevelt's footsteps in the way he governed, the way he absolutely uh, would disregard the Congress when he felt necessary, seizing the steel mills, going to war in Korea, whatever. He was modeling himself on Teddy Roosevelt. And you know, I actually, once in a while, I, I'll see somebody on some left-wing blog or something saying, gosh, you know, where, where are the great presidents these days. We're the Harry Trumans. I th that's the problem. Yeah. And, and the Harry Trumans come from Teddy Roosevelt, who is the godfather of all this stuff. And, and, and by the way, that's exactly the way George W. Bush thinks. I'm the decider, and I'm the representative of the American people. And I, even when the American people disagree with my policies, I sort of can divine the general will better than they can, so I'm going to implement their policies anyway. It's a very, very dangerous ideological tool at the president's disposal that I am the embodiment of the people's will such that I, in effect, know their will better than they do. You know, and that he can continue to portray himself that way even when poll after poll says you should reverse course in this and that policy. Very disturbing. Who do you think that Bush looks back to? Uh, is it... Um uh, is it Wilson? Is it FDR? See, I don't know if he has enough of a historical sweep in his own mind to know what precedents there are. And, and 
Because Clinton, Clinton did not seem as belligerent. No, he didn't. I mean, even though he did, you know, employ the military a great many times, right, I mean, you got the sense that he would be willing to, that he wouldn't consider negotiation to be an indication of a defeatist attitude, that this is the way, you know, civilized countries have behaved Maybe he just had a better uh, political instinct than Bush. I mean, Bush doesn't seem to have that instinct at all. Yeah, no, he doesn't, and I, I think Clinton was less, much, much less influenced by the people surrounding him, because I think he was a more intelligent man, even though I think he was, uh, I think he was very bad, and, and, and I think he was dishonest and everything else. I think with George W. Bush, I think he really is. There are some people who think he's a Machiavellian figure, who, who is actually very, very bright, but he just has this veneer of stupidity. I, I just can't buy that. I feel like he, he's got to be the single greatest actor on earth because he certainly strikes me as being kind of a doofus. But that means he's more inclined and more susceptible to being influenced by those around him who want to use the, who want to use Washington D.C. for their own pet projects, regime change or whatever. <clears throat> right. He does seem to flow through a series of advisors who have enact these amazing policies, like the Iraq War was. Uh, I don't know if it was his original idea, but uh, uh, he seems to be surrounded by these people that have these far-flung notions and drag them into 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 things, and then they're they're off uh, doing their uh, professional lives and leave him holding the ball. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what else. It's very frustrating. Um, uh, you mentioned that the word imperial presidency is a little bit outmoded. Do you have a, a suggested replacement? Oh yeah, I don't know, and it's kind of a, I, I I don't unfortunately. I think it should be, just be brought back. But if anything, Im imperial presidency, I think, is an understatement uh, these days. Because if, if you were going to apply it to Nixon, who you know did some bad things that uh, merited that term, I think the presidency has gotten to a point now between the use, the use of executive orders and the use of presidential signing statements, uh, where the, the president now has this habit where he'll sign a bill, and then alongside that he'll say, however, the executive branch will interpret the following provisions in this manner. Or the executive, um, you know, in effect, will not enforce this or will not do that. And and the types of things that this president consistently says he's not going to do involve matters of, of secrecy or disclosing information or providing reports to Congress on the Patriot Act or things involving foreign affairs. What kind of power is this going to pass on to his successor, whomever? Yeah, know, that's right. Know, that's... I mean, I wonder... I wonder what these so-called conservatives are going to think when Hillary Clinton is exercising these powers. I, 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 have, I will have no sympathy for them whatsoever. It's their own stinking fault for not keeping their own president on a short leash, with some noble exceptions. Bruce Fine, uh, you know, some other uh, people who identify themselves as Republicans have, Bob Barr, have spoken up uh, about this, but they are few and far between. Yeah, it, it, it almost makes you long for a Democratic president, in a way. Well, because at least it might make the Republicans... If only out of just a, a, a blockheaded desire to be contrarian, right. just to, to re remember their own supposed principles. Unfortunately, then they remember their principles and masquerade as uh, limited government people. Then they get reelected and yeah, they take them. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And, and, and everybody falls for it every single year. Yeah. Right. I get it again. Well, maybe fewer people will fall for uh, this and other notions thanks to your wonderful book. Well, that's very kind. Thanks. Uh, it's good to have you. My pleasure. All right, folks, as we depart for the weekend, bear in mind that obviously a lot of people have extra time. Maybe it's involuntary extra time, but we have extra time on our hands because we're at home. And I know a lot of people, based on Facebook comments I've been seeing, at least people in my circles are thinking this is a time for me to get cracking on some projects I've been meaning to do. So if that's you, that's great to hear. And I know that 
as I can tell from the types of websites people are starting, that a number of you folks who listen are interested in starting your own podcast, but it seems like it's an insurmountable project because how would you ever, I mean, the obstacles seem insurmountable, I should say, that there's a learning curve and there's so much to do and whatever. It's not nearly as bad as you think. So I want to uh, suggest to you a free podcast course if that describes you. If you're somebody who's been interested in podcasting, I like John Lee Dumas. He's the guy, I mean, I already was podcasting when I joined his group, but I definitely learned a lot from him. There's no question about it. I would say being part of his group is one of the two or three best decisions I ever made, let's say business-wise. But he's got a free podcast course that you can check out at tomwoods.com slash podcast course. And maybe this weekend is a good time to sink your teeth into that. So tomwoods.com slash podcast course is the link, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.